Hebrews. And uh, a strange thing happened. <clears throat> My iPad updated. And I discovered that the program I've been using for slides is not compatible with the update, so I can't. We're working on it, but this morning, you're just going to have to, yeah, listen. Can you imagine? Ugh. I hope you have a Bible with you, because I want to look at some verses and talk about some phrases in verses. We're taking a, a pretty good chunk of Scripture again. This is part 28. Jesus Christ, the eternal replacement of an earthly priesthood. Jesus Christ, the eternal replacement of an earthly priesthood. Hebrews 7, 17 to 28. For it is witnessed of him, the him there is Jesus... For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We took all last week talking about Melchizedek and why he's used as an illustration for the priesthood of Christ. That's online. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So there's the subject. How do people get access to God? 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests, uh, the Levites, they were made such without an oath. It was just because they were Levites. It was genetics. But this one, speaking of Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, this is a quote from the Psalms, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 23. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They got old and they died, and then somebody has to take their place, and so they, they, they couldn't keep doing it. They needed lots of them. That's his point. But he, the Christ, holds his priesthood permanently. He doesn't die, because he continues forever. The result of that. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting indeed that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, the Levites, to offer sacrifices daily, over and over again, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. That's, that's the Levites. Under the law of Moses, the Levites were to do this. But the word of the oath from Father God, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made a priest forever. It's quite a text. Let's pray. Be with us, Lord, as we finish this chapter. Faith isn't lost by being argued out of it. Faith usually deteriorates by we Christians not considering the things we already know. And so help us to think this through. Not, not with cold intellectualism. Think it through with minds warmed, seasoned to the truth by your Holy Spirit. In your name I pray. That's your prayer. Stick the amen on the end. Hebrews 7. What a chapter. There's, there's a, a danger in missing something. There's a contentious, contemporary issue. A relevant issue that's, that's easily missed in that long, kind of involved text that we just read. Because when we engage in any discussion of religion and meaningful access to God, how, how are we going to evaluate the options? Because there are lots of them, lots of religions. How shall we get to God? It's not an unimportant question. Is it all just a matter of personal opinion? Whose opinion is better? Or best. I mean, everyone has something to say. People from all sorts of faiths, religious theories, they all compete in what we call the marketplace of ideas. People debate, argue, scholars write books. And so the result, as you know, in our day, is everyone has the right to express any choice at all as a person of faith. Any faith. If you have faith... However you choose to define that faith, it's, it's kind of like gender, you know. However you want to define that faith, well, then your ideas are pretty much as valid as any others. Who's to say different? You have your truth, I have mine. You have your faith, I have mine. This has everything to do with our text. Here's why. Our writer builds a case... In today's text, look at what he's doing. It's politically very incorrect. He's arguing for the replacement of one religion with a better one. How dare he? One is vastly superior to the others. And our writer knows his audience of Jewish believers, converts to Christ, out of Judaism, they're being pressured to abandon their commitment to Christ, the world's Messiah, and replace that commitment to Christ with a return to Judaic devotion to the law of Moses. So, why shouldn't they? If that's what they want, if that's where their faith leads them, 
Which, which is better, Christianity or Judaism? Of course, even to ask the question is politically incorrect. Enter our text. Our writer has no problem at all telling his readers a return to Judaism would be a tragic blunder. That's what he's saying. He has no qualms of political correctness that all religions must be treated as equally true as long as they're sincerely held and practiced. And so hence, he urges his readers not to abandon faith in the living Christ for something, look at it in verse 18, for something weak and useless. Are you kidding me? Imagine the nerve of calling someone else's devoutly held religious beliefs weak and useless. And that, by the way, under divine inspiration by the Spirit of God himself. That's what this text is about. Point number one. Eternal life, this is way too long a point, but I just, you should be used to it by now. Eternal life can only be accessed by an eternal priesthood. An eternal priestly intercessor. And Jesus, the Christ, is the only one divinely provided. That's that whole thing about the oath. God makes the oath about, Father God makes the oath about God the Son. Eternal life can only be accessed by an eternal priestly intercessor, and there aren't a bunch of options. Jesus the Christ is the only one divinely provided. I know we just read it. I want you to look at it again for a minute, okay? 15 to 21. It's just six verses. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. That's talking about Jesus. Remember last week we said, he's of the tribe of Judah. Moses never said beans about priests coming from the tribe of Judah. They had to be Levites. So not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever. Forever. That was never said of anybody else. After the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The command that this priest had to be a descendant of Levi. That's set aside because Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. The former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope. Is introduced through which we draw near to God and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath it was just genetics 
But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This is the last uh, mention, by the way, of that mysterious Old Testament priest that we studied last week, Melchizedek. And it's easy to miss that our writer actually isn't talking about Melchizedek in these verses. That illustration has served its purpose. What he's actually talking about in verse 15 is another priest in the likeness of Melchizedek. And that another priest is Christ. He's talking about Jesus now. And there's really only one idea represented in verse 16. And our writer's going to examine it and apply it and re-examine it and reapply it from different angles for the rest of this chapter. Here is the point, verse 16. And I'd be underlining now if I, you know. He's talking about Jesus who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. Here's all you need to see. Contrast the two approaches. That's what's being done here. The two different qualifications in these two priestly roles. So, first, the legal requirement, verse 16. And second, the power of an indestructible life. Okay, that's, that's our writer's central point. There's the legal requirement, which he calls, in verse 16, bodily descent. Do you see that? That, that simply means that all those old covenant priests, they got their role, they got their job, by the legal requirement from Moses, that's the legal part, that they all be descendants of Levi. And that's what they had going for them. Nothing else. They were not fundamentally different from any other of Abraham's descendants. Same people. Same flaws, same tempers, same desires, same appetites, same habits. And then our writer contrasts those priests who met the legal requirement of Levitical descent with with another priest. And he says, verse 16, he entered his priestly role on the basis of effective power. The power of an indestructible life, verse 16. So it's not complicated. Immediately you can see where our writer is going, even before the rest of the text is examined. Not all roads to God are the same. One is powerful. All of the others are not powerful. That's his point. The others are merely the result of human regulations and policies. They shall be of the tribe of Levi. That's it. Could have picked any of the tribes. And here's what that means. It means there is nothing open-minded or generous in treating all religious options as equal. This is... Our writer would say this is spiritual and eternal 
madness. Some systems of religious observance are sustained by regulations and rituals and teachings, and they may contain moral instruction that is helpful, but only one mediator has visibly manifested, verse 16, look at it, the power of an indestructible life. There aren't options to this. That's our writer's point. So only one can bring people to a holy God eternally. That is the politically incorrect assessment of the Spirit of God in this text. Point number two. Our writer presses all Christians to understand why the Old Covenant law was weak and useless. It's 18. And how Christ's atoning work set it aside. So the way I worded that, I hope you see, there's a, there's a why question and then a how question. So why the Old Covenant law was weak and useless and then how Christ's atoning work sets it aside. The verses are 18 and 19. You got them in front of you? Are you guys going to put them up there? You can, you can't, whatever. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. I mean, it, uselessness? Really? For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So, so first, the why question. Why was the old covenant priestly sacrificial system, why was it weak and useless? And, and there's a bit of a, a challenge with those words because... The law that's being described as weak and useless was prescribed by God. Weak and useless? God gave it to Moses. Well, the problem isn't with the old covenant law. Apostle Paul tells us that the law is holy and good. How could it be otherwise? The problem is, this holy law is given to people like Don Horban. That's the problem. The law is given to people full of sin. This holy law is given to people who are fallen and corrupted by original sin to their very core. This is really important. We, we are sinners by nature before we even receive the law of God. We're not starting in a good place. So this holy law of God, it only serves to, it defines my sin. Paul said, I never would have known about covetousness being a sin, except there was this commandment, thou shalt not covet. All of a sudden, I go, wow, you're kidding, that's a sin too. 
It only serves to define sin and to measure the sin that's, that's already present in my nature. But what it cannot do, useless, it can't remove any of it. And really, that's what I need. I don't need to know more that I'm a sinner. Some people do. Our writer will make that painfully clear that the law can't remove it. Verses we'll get to later on in Hebrews 10, 3 and 4. He says, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. That's talking about the high priest on the Day of Atonement once a year going into the holy place. So it's, there's two R words. Removal, but that's not the one here. Reminder. The law serves, all of those sacrifices serve as a reminder of sins every year. Why just a reminder? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Can't be done. So, you take any religion. You take... Jesus Christ and the power of an indestructible life interceding on my behalf. Take Jesus out. Put all other religious expressions over here. This text says they are weak and they are useless. Something in the church ought to just say, praise God for Jesus. I said our writer deals with a why question and a how. The why question we've been considering. Why was the former covenant set aside? And the answer is, well, because it comes to sinful people, it can't remove their sin. It is weak and useless in terms of helping sinners with their guilt. Now the how question. How does the coming of Christ set the old covenant aside? I mean, I think Christians have this general, we grew up with it. And it's not, it's not wrong. It's not bad. It's just, it's just incomplete. We, we grew up with this idea that somehow we got it singing. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so we rejoice that it washes away our sins without maybe thinking about how does this set the, the law of sacrifices? and How does it set the law aside? There's a hint... In verse 19, and then there's a fuller explanation in 25 to 27. So first the hint. It says, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now that verse, anybody, anybody who's thinking when they read that verse... It raises the obvious question. How can sinners, that's us, how can sinners, those who can't even be helped by the holy law of God, how can those sinners, 719, how can they draw near to God? I mean, either, either these sinners aren't as bad as they seem, or God isn't, and this is 
a lot of churches are going down this road. God isn't quite as fussy about holiness as we imagined. I mean, Old Testament God, he got pretty rankled, but he's evolved. And, and he just kind of loves everything. There, there. Don't worry about it. So, so if, if these people who can't even be helped by the law of God, verse 19, if, if they can draw near to God, either maybe they aren't that bad or God isn't that fussy about holiness, but those seem to be about the only two choices. Then after the hint in verse 19, we get the full explanation in Hebrews 7, 25 to 27. Look at it. Consequently, so... As a result of something else. This is a conclusion. That's what that word means. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, not like those Levitical priests who died and died and died. He always lives to make intercession. So the, the drawing near, the drawing near is a result of the intercession. He's able to say to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. You can't say that about any other priest in any other religion. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. There's a lot there, I admit. But don't overcomplicate it. There are three points. Really, there are only three points that are made in those three verses. And they're three points of contrast. You can see them. First, the old covenant priests were sinners, and Christ isn't. That's why he didn't have to offer sacrifice for himself, like the old covenant priests. Okay? The old covenant priests were sinners, Christ isn't. Second, the old covenant priests were mortals, perishable mortars, mortals, and Christ always lives. That's in 25. And third, those old covenant priests offered brute beasts and animals. And Christ offered himself. Those are the three differences. And so our writer, he means for us to, Don, trace out the fruit of those three important differences. Because the differences are huge. Only the sacrifice of Christ can make it possible for the likes of Don Horbin to approach God, to become near to God, as it says in verse 25. 7.19, the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 25. Consequently, he's able to say to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. 
how, how does the sacrifice of our high priest, Jesus Christ, set aside? Those are the words used in our text. How do they set aside the entire Old Covenant law? How, how specifically does that work? And apparently we need to know this because understanding the details isn't just some kind of theological test. Knowing this is the root for hope and the release from a guilty conscience. The writer of Hebrews is really concerned that these Jewish Christians being enticed back under the law, he wants them to understand the difference Christ makes. And, and, and the way he's going to describe it down the road is he's going to say, the death of Christ and his priestly work cleanses your conscience. Cleanses the conscience. Let me, let me just show you quickly where he says that. In 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, see it, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He'll say it again in Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So here's how. Here's how the priestly ministry of Christ brings deliverance to my guilty conscience. Here's how that old covenant law gets set aside. All of those old covenant priests and everyone for whom they ministered, all the Levites and everyone who brought animals for them to sacrifice, everyone they represented... They all knew they were still totally unable to fulfill the law of God. That's why they didn't just bring animals once. That's why those animals had to be brought over and over and over again. Somehow, somehow, those ongoing sinful hearts of the people had to be continuously paying for their failures, right? That's what's happening. So the sacrifice, I bring it to the priest. He has to, he has to sacrifice for his own sins before he can even represent me. And then he takes my sacrifice. And then I come back again the next day with another animal and that has to be sacrificed for my sin. And then I come back another day, and that animal has to be sacrificed for my sin. Why, why does this have to keep going? Why does God demand? Is he just against animals? What God is graphically teaching the people is they're still sinners. They're still sinners, and their sin has to be paid for over and over and over and over again because it's not taken care of. It's not permanently taken care of. So 
But all of this changes with the final priestly sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Here is the first sacrifice, the first ever, that took every demand of the holy law of God and perfectly, completely fulfilled it. This is what a bull and a goat can never do and an Old Testament priest can never do. Here's what Jesus did. He took every requirement of a holy God and he lived it out in humanity perfectly. I know I don't keep God's law perfectly. But Jesus, like all priests, doesn't just represent himself. He, like all priests, it says he's entered the heavens, the right hand of God, on my behalf. The difference with Christ is he stands on my behalf before God as a man in absolute, complete perfection. And my conscience, while still a valuable guide for walking and growing in sanctification before my Lord, my conscience is informed by the Spirit of God, His Spirit bears witness with my spirit, that in spite of my own present weakness, there stands the perfect righteousness of my high priest before the throne of God, and he lives forever there. He's not going to pass away like a Levite. There are no more sacrifices. Jesus died once and rose. The power of an indestructible life, our text says. So, so if I, hopefully it diminishes, I'm growing in Christ, but if I continue to sin and there are absolutely no more sacrifices being offered, what does that tell you about the power of that one sacrifice? Right? Just logic. It means that one sacrifice didn't just work the moment of my conversion. It means, ongoingly, day by day, there's hope for someone like me. But it's not just, well, you know, try a little harder. I do try hard. I do try hard. And I want to try harder. But behind all that, I stand in the fact that I know there's a finished work perfectly done. And my conscience, my conscience is delivered from that. That condemning, you better get another sacrifice. You better get another sacrifice. You better go to the priest. You know what you did yesterday. You better go to the priest. The law of God no longer stands before me as a threatening enemy. And the Bible tells me why this is so. Here are great verses. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. What did Jesus, what did Jesus take to the cross? And 99% of Christians will say immediately, my sins were nailed there. True enough. But still incomplete. Something else was nailed there. And this text says, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, we get that. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it. What's the it? It's the law with its legal demands. My sin's up there, and the law, with all of its incriminating evidence against me, the writer of Hebrews just says he set it aside. Paul says it, it got nailed to that cross and covered along with my sins. That's why Paul said, who shall lay any charge against the elect? Remember, more than just your sins were nailed to the cross, the legal demands, Colossians 2.14, they were nailed there. So as a means of obtaining, as a means of obtaining my standing before God, Christ in his role as my high priest, he set aside. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. The old covenant law and all other religion as a means of dealing with my sin and guilt. Three, we are almost done. God has made an oath. There's a lot about an oath in this text. God has made an oath. There will never be anything else added to or required beyond what has been accomplished in the priestly ministry of Christ. That's, that's the glorious truth in those kind of cumbersome verses 20 to 24 where it says and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests, the Levites, were made such without an oath. But this one, the Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest Forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, the Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. All those old covenant priests and every other priest. They come to the end of their role through genetic succession. Speaking of the Levites, there was nothing else to it. It was a simple rule of family tree. Verse 20, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But not so with Christ. Just as surely as he rose from the dead and lives forever, his work will be effective forever. 24, he holds his priesthood, not just his life, his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. How can we, how shall we, Christians, how will we make this truth as precious as it is? Where will we go when our conscience won't let us rest for sins that remind us of our present frailty? How, how will we deal with that?
what will help you in the face of temptation? What will you, what will you draw out of your mind and heart when you feel like you can't pray because you're not worthy? You're not worthy to talk to a holy God knowing what you did yesterday. What will you say to the accusations of the devil? All that you aren't but should be. You, you will have to stand in the fact that Father God when God saved me he knew that there would need to be ongoing priestly intercession for the rest of my life. And that's why Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. In other words, God was providing for my future Christian life and all that it wouldn't be with the eternal ministry of Jesus. If you ask the average Christian, what is Jesus doing now? They immediately will go to John 14 and say, well, he's gone to prepare a place for us. And he is. But that's not all he's doing. Jesus has a, I don't mean to be sacrilegious, Jesus has a full-time job right now at the right hand of the Father. Do you know what he's doing? He continues to provide access for me. He does it 24-7. He never sleeps. He never takes a break. He doesn't need to. His perfection stands at the right hand of the Father on the behalf of Don Horbin because I don't have that yet. Hallelujah. This is what the Bible means. It's not just something for silly little plaques. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. What it means is he's saving me now just as much as he did when I was converted. He will never stop. You will have to tell yourself that over and over again. You will have to remind yourself that when John had his vision of the throne of God in heaven, he was immediately able to recognize the Lord. John the Beloved, who had sat with Jesus how many times? With bread. How many times walked from one place to another talking with Jesus? John the Beloved knew Jesus. And when John has his vision around the throne of God, he is able, this is significant, he is able to instantly recognize who Jesus is. How does he recognize him? Look at this description. Revelation 5, 5 and 6. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders... I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is long after the death of Jesus. And John sees around the throne of God. And what he sees is, it's like a slain lamb. And the blood of Jesus is still working for John Horbin. And it's still working for you. 
the ongoing work, that vision, I know it's just a vision, but it perfectly portrays the ongoing work of the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lamb for my sin. The effect of that sacrifice has never been diluted with the passing of time or the depth of human sin. People like I can come to God. I still sin. But there's never been another sacrifice, and there never will be. Four, but look, that's point number four, and that's the end. If you have not been brought near through faith in the work of Christ, you are still far away from God. You see that 25th verse? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Who? Everybody? He makes intercession for everyone? No, those who draw near to God through him. The opposite of near is far away. You can't get near to God without Jesus Christ. You can't get near to God without specific faith in Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf and your sin. This doesn't come from being Presbyterian or Pentecostal or Anglican. It doesn't come from being born into a Christian home. There is no hope for approaching God for needed grace apart from the work of Christ. And if you haven't yet placed specific faith in the atoning work of this Redeemer, the Lamb of God, to whom all those other sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed, you are now and you will be eternally far from God. He's able to save to the uttermost, praise God, those who draw near to God through him. Makes sense when you look at what we talked about today. If none of those other sacrifices in any other religions, if none of them remove my sin, it's impossible, then I stand guilty in my sin. I don't have Jesus Christ as my Savior and High Priest. And I'm far from God. Loves you with an everlasting love. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace, but come through Christ. Let's pray.